it is an absolute privilege and pleasure to be with you all tonight. I absolutely love my brothers and sisters at Desert Springs, and I am so thankful to be here with you all. Um, we're going to do a one-off study in Haggai chapter 1 this evening, Haggai chapter 1, um, which helps us to look at our priorities as followers of Jesus and which highlights the need for Christ-centered priorities in all of life. So if you would open your Bibles uh, with me to Haggai chapter 1, I'm going to uh, read the passage for us and then I'm going to pray for us and ask God to help us understand his word. So Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you shall withhold the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on the ground, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And they feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let me pray for us and ask for God's help. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your powerful word. We uh, love your book. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Thank you uh, for um, how the Bible both confronts us and comforts us. And we pray as we study your word tonight that we would be encouraged uh, by your incredible grace 
uh, your steadfast love and your covenant faithfulness uh, to your people. And uh, that we be mightily encouraged that your word does its work and that your word really does change and transform our lives. Uh, And we pray that your word would change us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, There are a whole series of ways to preach this chapter really badly. Um, It would be very easy to read and to study Haggai chapter 1 in a legalistic and guilt-producing way. But we don't want to do that. Amen? We don't want to do that because there's absolutely no gospel in that at all. There's no good news. Uh, in reading this passage that way. And we don't want to do that because that does not actually produce true or lasting transformation in the people of God whatsoever. And we don't want to do that because it's not what God's doing in this chapter. What God is doing is to very graciously send his word to his people through his prophet Haggai. Because he loves his people so much and because he is so rightly committed to his own glory, God will not let his people carry on living with misplaced and misdirected priorities. And so this is a passage where we see the word of God do the work of God by the spirit of God in the people of God, all for the glory of God. And it's a passage where we're encouraged that God's word does its work in us as his people, as those who trust and treasure the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So we're going to look at the passage under three headings, all focusing on the good and gracious word of God. The exposing word of God in verses 1 through 4, the confronting word of God in verses 5 to 11, and then finally the enabling word. Word of God in verses 12 to 15. So if you're ready to go, let's jump in. Number one, the exposing word of God. This is one of the most precisely dated prophecies that we have in the Old Testament. And a little bit of historical context is going to be important for us in order to understand the chapter. So look back at verse one at how precisely dated Uh, this prophecy is in the second year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel governor of Judah and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest Uh, so Haggai proclaimed God's word between August and December of 520 BC but just hold on It gets more specific than that. He probably preached this message on August the 29th, 520 BC. It was a massively important day because it was the first time that God had spoken to his people through a prophet since he had brought them back to the land from captivity in Babylon. The word of God came during a time of drought and famine in the land. The people had lost focus on why they were back in the land. 
And they had become completely preoccupied with themselves and their own purposes. Uh, Just remember, God had sent his people into exile in Babylon, where they had stayed for 70 years. But just as he had promised, God had brought them back from exile and restored them to the land. And although the first exiles to return had found a devastated city and temple, they had nevertheless returned with great excitement and with a sense of adventure. They were ready to get after the work that God had brought them back to the land to do. So they had jumped into the work of rebuilding the temple with both feet. They were eager. They were focused. They were all about it. But the work was really difficult. And the opposition from their enemies was really strong. So the people had become discouraged. And they had become disheartened. And they had become disillusioned. And so the work of rebuilding the temple had come to a standstill. And it had come to a standstill for quite some time. In fact, it was now some 12 to 16 years later and the people had still not resumed the work and the temple had still not been rebuilt. The people of God had become complacent. They had become distracted. They had become indifferent to the things of God. And in order to justify themselves, they were trying to make excuses about it. So just look back at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's the excuse that the people are making. It's not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. They're back in the land. The temple was a complete shambles and the people were neglecting it and they were excusing themselves for neglecting it by saying that it isn't time to rebuild the house of the Lord or by saying there isn't time to rebuild the house of the Lord just now. But God isn't buying it. He tells them that their excuse doesn't add up. God is referred to here as the Lord of hosts, uh, which puts the spotlight on his might and which points to the invincible might of his word. And he's not happy with his people at all here. And he shows them that by calling them these people. Or this people. Did you pick that up in verse 2? Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Um, As Asher said at the beginning, my wife and I have seven children. We have five boys and two girls. And I promise you that nothing good is going to follow my wife walking into the room with one of our sons and saying, this son of yours. 
<clears throat> the Lord's not happy with his people, uh, but he does love them. And he is gracious. And that's how we hold this chapter in its right perspective. God is graciously sending his word to his people so that his word will do its work in their lives and reorder their loves and sort out their priorities and enable them to live for his glory. So God sends his word to expose the people's weak excuses. Look at what the Lord says to them in verse three. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God, and I'm gonna repeat this all the way through, very graciously. Stay with me on that point. God very graciously exposes the people's response for the lame excuse that it is. He shows them that their excuse about time to work on the temple does not wash. And the reason that it does not wash is because they have plenty of time to build their own top-notch houses. Somehow they find time to dwell in paneled houses themselves while they're neglecting the house of God. God's house lies in ruins while the people are spending all of their time and their energy and their resources on making their houses flat out luxurious. Now, let's pause for a minute. Just before we misunderstand Haggai on this point. God is not anti our own houses. There is nothing wrong with building and owning our own houses, and there is nothing wrong with working on our own houses. So if you are right in the middle of a bit of do it yourself on your house, you can breathe. Keep going. Go for it. Haggai is simply saying that it's wrong to put our house before God's house. It is sinful for us to shove God out of the center and to put other things in the center and to worship them. It is idolatrous to make other things, even good things, the ultimate thing in the place of God. These people were pushing God out of top spot. They were putting other things in his place. They were neglecting the glory and the splendor of God. And by making themselves the priority, in essence, they were saying that God is irrelevant and that God didn't matter. That's what the word of God is Exposing and not only exposing, but confronting. And that's our second point uh, the confronting word of God. God's word confronted and challenged the people's priorities, which is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews says that God's word does. Uh, 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, he says that God's word discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, it shows us what really matters for us. The real motives or intentions for the people here were to be safe and to be comfortable and not to take risks for the things of God. They had relegated God to second place in their lives and they'd put other things first. And so God very graciously confronts them with his word and he forces them to examine themselves. So he calls on the people to consider their ways. It actually gets repeated in verses uh, five and seven. Just look at verse five. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That's the confronting word of God in his wonderful grace to his people. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. He wants them to give careful thought to their situation, uh, to allow the empirical evidence in their lives to show them what they're really all about, so that they could see the ways in which they were pushing God to the sidelines, uh, the ways in which they were drifting away from him and putting other things in his place. When they did this, they would be able to see that despite their best efforts at safety and comfort and security on their own, it never panned out. It never delivered. It never worked. These verses describe hardship and hunger and thirst and little harvest. Even though the people were completely focused on investing and eating and drinking and clothing and earning a paycheck, that was really what life was about for them. That's what they poured their time and effort and energy into. But even still, there was little return and life was slipping away with no real satisfaction. And so God, very graciously, is grabbing their attention. His word is exposing their shabby excuses and his word is confronting them so that they'll consider their ways and see where their focus is. Uh, God is waking them up to their failure of living with him as their top priority. Pick up at verse eight, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, 
I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. It's striking in those verses, isn't it, that God is not at all shy that he's the one doing these things. He blew it away. He withheld the dew. He withheld the produce. He called for the drought. These things were all going wrong by God's deliberate design but not at all because God was grumpy or was punishing his people. Did you see the new film uh, that came out a couple of years ago, Exodus? Uh, If you haven't, don't. Um, it portrays God as a, as a grumpy teenager. It's awful. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible at all. God isn't doing these things uh, because he's grumpy and bad-tempered and uh, is punishing his people. God is doing these things because his people are settling for lesser pleasures than him. And that won't be good for them. Now we need to be really careful here because this is not always the answer for all of the difficulties that we face as followers of Jesus. The Bible gives us many different reasons for the sufferings that we face as followers of Jesus. And we're promised that as followers of Jesus, we will face suffering for the sake of following him. But at times, it is at least worth asking the question in some circumstances of whether God is lovingly disciplining us as his children in some area because we have been half-hearted about him. That's not, that's not the answer for all of the difficulties that we face, but at times, in some circumstances, it is worth asking the question, is God lovingly disciplining us as his children? And I'm very, very intentionally using the word discipline there because that's the word the Bible actually uses for God's people. That's what Hebrews says, right? God, as our loving father, will discipline his children, not punish. Why not punish? Because Jesus, our perfect substitute, has already taken the punishment for us in our place on the cross. That's what we get to remember tonight 
and celebrate and praise him for and proclaim. We remember, and as Asher said earlier, we proclaim his death until he comes again. So, so this is not punishment for the people of God. Why? Because Jesus has taken the punishment for you already. He's paid the price in full. He stood in for you on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath to its dregs in your place. He's taken your punishment already. He's paid the price in full. He stood in for you as your substitute. On the cross, Jesus has dealt with the punishment and the judgment of God. But what, what does God graciously do as a good father? He does lovingly discipline his children in certain areas when we have been half-hearted about him. God was very graciously doing all of this in this passage in order to show his people where they were and in order to show them the way forward. So this was the good hand of God at work through his word. Remember what we said at the beginning. As we're studying this passage, we should not feel beaten up in any way as the people of God. God is lovingly and graciously giving his word to his people in order to show them where they are in order to lead them into the future. It's the good hand of God at work through his word. And not only was he allowing his people to see just how far they had drifted, but he was also giving them the solution. And God's message was simple and very straightforward. It's there in verse eight. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It's wonderful, isn't it? The people have become completely distracted. The people are, have, have misdirected their focus entirely on themselves and the building of their own paneled houses. They're completely neglecting God's house and they're making excuses for it. And God's word graciously confronts them and says, look at where you are, look at what you're doing. And then it's just so simple. He just says in verse eight, so just go up the hill, get some wood and get to work. It's so simple. I think I have a tendency to complicate these things. Wonderfully, God doesn't. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and have the glory. God says, it is time. Remember their excuse? It's not time to build the Lord's house. Or there isn't any time now, just now, to build the Lord's house. It all sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? What's God's answer? It is time to build God's house for God's glory. It is time to live for the glory of God now. Uh, God did expose and confront their selfishness and their self-sufficiency but he would also empower them to live with him in the center and to live for his glory. And that's our final heading. Uh, third, the enabling word of God. Because wonderfully, God doesn't leave his people 
there. Uh, the, the people of God do get back to obeying God's word and to doing the work that God had told them to do. But the great surprise comes in the final verses of the passage where we learn that it is actually God who enables their work and who stirs them up to do it. So verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, look, 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 look at what God's word produces in God's people. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God with the words of Haggai the prophet. As the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. It's only by the grace of God that we can actually live with God in the center. It's only by the grace of God that we will actually live with God as our top priority. It's only by the grace of God that we will live with God in top spot in our lives. And these verses speak to the power of God's word to strengthen his people and, and, and to enable them to live for his glory. The leaders and the people together respond to the word of God. That gets repeated all the way through here. This remnant did what? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They obeyed the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord had sent them. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. All of that is speaking to the power of God's word. And the leaders and the people together respond to the word of God. They repent and turn to God and they got, get on with the work that God had told them to do. The Lord stirred them up to obey his word. Uh, to, to obey his voice, the, the, the voice of the Lord, their God, in verse 12. Uh, where, the word of God, where the word of God is rightly handled, the voice of God is heard. Where the Bible is cut straight, where, where the preacher gets God's word right, and gets God's word across. Where God's word is rightly handled, the voice of God is heard. And that's where the power is, friends. It's dynamite. God's word actually produces obedience to God's word in the people here. The Lord stirs them up to obey his word. 
None of this is the people trying to earn their way back into God's good books. All of this is the gracious work of God through his word in his people for his glory. And that's why here at the end of the chapter, God's people are no longer called these people or this people, like this son of yours. But now they're called the remnant, which they've always been. God's people. God's people. Remember what we've been saying all the way through. This is God graciously giving his word to his people. They're the remnant. In verse 12 and verse 14. Who are the remnant? They are God's people. His people in right relationship with him. And now by his grace, his people living with him in the center of their lives. And with the glad assurance that he is with them and enabling them to live for his glory. What's happened? The people have been awakened by the word of God and stirred on by the grace of God. God is with them as their God and they are his people. And friends, that's actually God's promise all the way through his book. The great promise all the way through the Bible from God to his people is, I will be their God and you will be my people. God saves sinners. God rescues rebels. God's great promise is that he is their God and they are his people and that he is with them. Verse 13, what's what's the Lord's message through the Lord's messenger Haggai? I am with you, declares the Lord. What grace. Uh, what, 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 What steadfast love. Uh, what, what covenant faithfulness. God is with his people. He is their God and they are his people. And that is exactly what the temple was all about. The temple was meant to assure the people that God was their God and that he was with them and that they were his people. And they were neglecting all of that. And so what does God in his love and grace and mercy do? He sends his word through his prophet Haggai to his people so that they can remember that. Well, obviously, Haggai is not telling us that we are supposed to move to Jerusalem and build the physical temple. Can we all agree on that? (laughs) Amen? Okay. (laughs) Haggai is not telling us that we are supposed to move to Jerusalem and to build the physical temple, but that does not mean that Haggai is not telling us anything at all. Because in this passage, God is reminding us that he is the ultimate thing and that we are to live with him in the center of our lives as our top priority and that we are to live for his glory. And that living for his glory by his wonderful grace actually involves building the temple. And the most developed New Testament picture of the church is that of the body, the body of Christ. And it says that Jesus' body is the new temple. 
that the church, the body of his people, is the temple. And what that means is that building the temple this side of the cross means promoting the glory of his name among his people and extending the glory of his name among the peoples. Uh, The big fancy words for that are the edification of his people, the building up of those who trust in Jesus, and the evangelization of those who are not yet his people. Uh, Telling the world the good news about Jesus. A life devoted to him and to his reputation will involve spreading the fame of his name. It will, en- it will engage us in building a people in whom God will dwell forever. And it will mean that we will be about the work of helping people to know Jesus and of helping those who do know Jesus to keep on going with Jesus. And so God's word confronts us. Uh, And it forces us to let the empirical evidence in our lives tell us where we're at with that. Wonderfully, we become part of God's building project by belonging to Jesus. By knowing that he became a curse for us. By realizing that he paid the price for our failure on the cross in full. And by trusting him as our Lord and Savior. And as those who do know him, we're enabled by his grace to walk wholeheartedly in the way of his word, the Bible, and to make much of him all the way to heaven. And as we eat this meal together tonight, the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of what Jesus has done in order to rescue rebels like us and to rule us as our great and gracious king. As we eat this meal together, the Lord's Supper tonight, we actually get to proclaim his death until he comes again to get his people and to take us to be with him forever and ever and ever. And so we are comforted by the gospel as we come to his table. And then we are sent out from his table with the gospel to share with one another and with the world. And so God's wonderful word uh, comes to us and says, uh, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. It is time to live for the glory of God. It is time for you and I. Uh, Now, now is the time for you and I, by the grace of God, to glorify him by encouraging each other as followers of Jesus to keep on going, keep going, Uh, and by reaching out to a lost world and giving them the good news about Jesus.